Lyrics of the Hub, your fan cast, brought to you by TV Series Hub. All right, guys, welcome back to Nurks. We are so excited. I am your host, Kelsey, and I am joined by fellow Nurk Uber. Hey there. And we are so excited to have graphic novelist Chris James. Hey, thanks. <laughs> so Chris has been around Hollywood for a while, member of the band Bootstraps. You've been in all kinds of TV and and then decided to write the most ginormous <laughs> graphic novel I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> hey, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Always <laughs> nice to hang out uh, with uh, ginormous graphic novel lovers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. And I, so I'll tell you my first impression when I when it came in the mail, uh, I picked it up and I thought like my husband had ordered like a textbook because <laughs> it was so heavy. And, and then I opened it and I was like, this is amazing. I mean, it really gives you an Im- it's so big when you're reading it that it's it's immersive. You can't pay attention to anything else. You don't see anything else. You're fully invested. So I'm wondering what gave you. I mean, just to start with the very like idea for the format of the book, how did that come about? Well, because it's so hard to keep people focused for more than sound bites nowadays. I figured if you have this on your lap, you won't be able to move. Yeah. Uh, so it's more of an anchor that forces you to have to pay attention because you need help getting it off of you so you can stand up again. Uh, I think that was probably the intention. Um, but what happened is initially we started doing typical sized pages and you look at it and it just didn't have a significant impact because the uh, in my mind, I always imagined these vast spreads of like you know, huge epic sort of moments of, of war sequences. And, uh, and it just felt super claustrophobic and it didn't have that epic feeling that I wanted to portray. So what that caused (laughs) was digging a massive hole into making a double sized book that is way harder to carry pack in a bag, ship or print. (laughs) So, so just because it, I wanted it to feel different, it ended up just becoming this huge, huge ordeal. But I mean, I'm happy about it because now, like you said, you, you open it and the intent was not to have a, a little page of each thing, but that each spread is, you know, three feet long. Basically, when you open the book, it's 26 or 27 inches. So, you know, it's two and a half feet of a spread that really engages you. Um, hopefully. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like fully immersive. It's all around you. <laughs> it's amazing. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, well, I'm glad you like it. Um, it's, it's a, it took a little bit of time and a lot of, uh, migraines and a lot of migraines <laughs> that I imposed upon other people, but, oh. uh, inevitably <laughs> it now exists forever. 
which is a bonus. Like I think almost very few things now have a sense of lasting forever because everything now is, is solely digital. Like even, you know, DVD collections are gone, you know, and there's no tangible thing now really except for books. Uh, so yeah that actually actually works into my next question which uh which is what drew you to make this a graphic novel as opposed to let's say a movie or something well initially i think i always start every every concept is to be a movie or a tv show it's where I came from. That's where I've been writing for the past 20 years. Uh, and I think with this one, it got to a certain point where I realized, Ooh, if, if this only lives in a screenplay form, I will be devastated because, because so much mental focus and, and thousands and thousands of hours had gone into, you know, understanding the, the history of the event and, and figuring out the story and breaking it down that you get to this point where you're like, I don't want to have one more script that just lives in my computer forever. Um, so it, it, it was a justified subject matter to build into a format like this type of a book. And once um, the other people that were kind of involved in, in working on the project with me um, kind of thought it through, we, we all came to the conclusion that that it deserved to live and we could guarantee it living if we went this route as opposed to the movie version or a TV version, which obviously I am working towards now. But, you know, those take for, for a, a story of this scope on your cheapest day, you're talking about a $75 million movie, which yeah. is sl- slightly more challenging to put together. So, so yeah. So, so at least with the book, we could have it exist and have a life uh, that outlived our own. Well, that's awesome. And I think that people often underestimate how hard it is to write a graphic novel um, in, in this way that it's like, oh, it's so few words, but to get a complete story across in so few words recalls being a word, you know, requires being a wordsmith in a way that people I don't think realize. So it's, I think, a really impressive task to take on when, when you haven't maybe been familiar with writing for graphic novels before. And as you said, thousands of hours later. <laughs> oh, God, no. Had I known how hard it was to economize words to fit in this manner and to tell the same amount of story uh-huh. and build character nuances and all of this in this format, I would have, I would have probably pleaded with someone to either just put me on fentanyl or (laughs) just shoot me in the face because it's the hardest task I think I've ever had to face. Um, it's, it's, uh, the writers that, that do this kind of thing should be, um, commended, uh, overwhelmingly. Because it's such a different type of, of an approach to writing. You literally have to figure out how do I tell in one box this page of content and subject matter. And that part, I, you know, I drove people insane because – I would go back through it and back through it. And still today, there's so much of, the, of, of those text bubbles that I would love to rewrite. Uh, and But every time I made a change, it had to go back to the, the letterer 
to yes. alter. And ironically, the, the letterer was Argentinian and his English was only okay. So he, he wanted to kill me, but fortunately <laughs> didn't know how to say that in English. <laughs> Um, because I would drive him insane, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the amount of rewrites it took me to try to even get it here, which I think is decent, but still I could improve it for 10 more years. Um, it, no, you're, you're so spot on. Like the, the, the writers that write in this format, well, uh, are so under recognized <laughs> because it's mm-hmm. e- economizing words in this manner is, is next to impossible anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you're totally right. I had so much respect for the ability to choose each word so particularly to narrow it down. But I do think we should probably tell people (laughs) what the story is about. I realize we jumped past that. Um, So the Greek Independence War, 1821, and the hero is... Marcos Botsaras, who I had never heard of before this. I honestly had never even heard of this particular war uh, and was in reading about it before, you know, getting the book and stuff. I mean, he's like a huge figure for, for Greek people, but obviously just not here in the U.S. It's an incredible story. What brought you to that story? Uh, after probably somewhere between... 10 months and a year and a half of kind of ongoing research to try to understand the war more thoroughly, uh, which is challenging because there's not a lot in English language uh, resources. So there was a lot of deciphering from a lot of books trying to figure out as much as I could about the war. And there were some key players that are a bit more famous than Marcos Batseras, but I liked his story primarily because it was connected to Ali Pasha, uh, the sort of Ottoman Empire. He, he wasn't, he was kind of his own sort of leader, but he, he was the Pasha that was in charge of Greece, basically, um, for the Ottoman Empire. Um, now, he forced himself into that position. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire said, no, 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 <laughs> thanks. We don't, we don't want you here as the Pasha because he was so infamous for kind of being a, a pretty inhumane leader that even the Sultan was afraid of him. Uh, but he went to Yanina, the north of Greece, and said, hey, uh, I'm here. I'm the new Pasha <laughs> and basically lied his way into the position. And uh, and so I loved this storyline between he and the Sulliot people, which the Sulliots were a band of sort of like almost like a hill tribe, like a bunch of not necessarily Robin Hoods, but but they were they lived in the hills. And the hills were very intense and, and jagged and, and harsh. And so the the Ottomans couldn't ever get them to turn because they'd send armies up into the hills and the armies would come back and have failed. So this bunch of people never, ever submitted to Ottoman power. And so this storyline between Ali Pasha, who I think is one of the most amazing sort of nemesis characters that I've ever found in any literature, and these people who fought through the entire 400 years that the Ottomans held power over the Greeks – 
I thought it was a great introduction to the war. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many strings about this war because it was built, it was building for decades. Then the revolution went on for about a decade and it lingered on for decades after. So finding the in to make it interesting for the non-Greek community was a challenge. And so I honed in on this story. Um, and Marcos Batseris was cool because he was, he was really young at the time that things began. So you got to kind of experience him growing up into a leader, uh, as opposed to some of the other iconic figures who were already older by this right. point in time. Yeah. So that's a, a, a bit of why. <laughs> well, I, I, love the, I love the nuances of their personalities that you wove into the narrative, how we got some of the humorous beats about uh, Marco's natural fighting instincts, which, of course, <laughs> isn't true. And, uh, and about, you know, with, with Ali and his deceptively cordial, bombastic personality. Mm. Where did you draw these personalities, the, the inspiration for these personalities of these people? Uh, well, the, initially, like I think any, anything that you're doing historic is more of a process where you, you act as an investigative reporter for a while. And then once you have these sort of very minimal sort of signposts of the equation of their existence and the, the people in their lives, then I guess I sort of stamped a hypothetical psychology on their equation. Uh, you know, for, for instance, um, growing up the son of, of the leader of your village comes with a lot of pressure. And so it, it, uh, instead of just saying, oh, you're, he's the son of the leader and now he's a great leader. Well, I have a lot of friends who are the son or daughter of billionaires and they live in this shadow of achievement that's nearly impossible for humans to attain just on the whole. But their whole life is now based on proving that they are good enough and that they can follow in the footsteps. But yet I watch all of them fail and, and mostly go through the biggest psychological challenges in their life. So I take what I see in the world around me and just sort of impose that upon the equation of the people that I have sort of uh, hypothetically estimated. Um, and so, yeah, so then the nuances, I think, stem from a lot of guesswork and then a lot of stuff that you, I think it, any writer, you can't help it. You pull from your own psychology. So ironically, I had no, no thought that this story had anything to do with me when I wrote it. And then one day I was about to talk about it to somebody and I realized, oh, my God, this is a guy who is struggling with massive father abandonment issues and searching um, – hoping to find worthiness that he's good enough as a human and that he can be loved. Well, if I apply that to my existence, it's my story. <laughs> so it, I accidentally, my entire psychology and 
growing up sort of with a single mom who was gone working all the time and trying to find my way at being, uh, you know, a guy who didn't really have guidance and didn't have any strong role models or, or whatnot and had no proof that I was wanted as a child, you know, as a child, you, you make these sort of, um, these really immature, um, you, you impose these immature meanings upon things that are, are totally inaccurate and you spend the rest of your life trying to undo them and relearn <laughs> that maybe what happened is you, to you as a child doesn't need to be the same thing that happens to you in a cyclical equation every day of your life. Um, and so I accidentally imposed all of my own existence onto these characters, which is probably another reason why I was drawn to tell this story accidentally. <laughs> do you think that that also maybe has to do with, I mean, you uh, wrote, produced and directed memory of my father. You <laughs> creating this graphic novel. Do you think like that, that, is your way of leaving a stamp, a permanent stamp, in the same way that sort of Marcos is trying to to find his way? Do you feel like that's, you know, kind of your journey there? A hundred percent, yes. Uh, I I have done all of these various things in my life, from becoming an actor to a musician to writing things to directing things. And behind every motivation is your, you know, I can't speak for the world, but if I'm being honest about myself, I'm, I'm trying to, to prove my value to, to know that I am enough so that I can be loved. Like that's the simple equation. And so, yes, by me looking to achieve these sort of higher level global goals of success on a, on a very challenging platform, I think places the stakes up high. And so there's this unconscious equation that says, well, if you can achieve that, then you must have value. You must be okay. Maybe if you do that, then you will be enough, which is this delusional childish psychology, which is completely inaccurate because even when you get there, it's still mm -hmm. not enough and you need to do it again in a different way and again in a different way, only hoping that one day you realize that you already are enough and that this is just a bullshit kind of equation that you're playing out for no good reason. <laughs> right. It's the constant rewrite of your life, right? I could have done this better. I could have done this better. I could have done this better. Until you realize at one point you have to let it go and send it out the door, I guess. Yeah. At some point you got to realize that you're okay and that you yourself as a human that exists, assuming that you're not really harmful to people are enough. And you're only trying to prove something to yourself that already exists. You know, I, I I'm actually thinking about something that happened in my life where um, I'm told I'm talented and it's like, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, I have a project coming up. I've got to draw such and such. I've got to design such and such. And I have the voice in my head saying, you can't really do this. You're not really. The last time it was a fluke. Yeah, you did great on that one, but it's not going to work. This <laughs> It's not going right. to work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Um, this podcast is brought to you by TVSeriesHub.tv, your site for entertainment news, reviews, and interviews. Now back to the show. 
So uh, I wanted to get back to a little bit what you were talking about with the historical uh, relevance in the story and how you were like an investigative reporter. Uh, And I was thinking about in the story how there were a lot of these parallel beats and where we see a terrible event and sort of a flip side, a mockery of that event as it was taking place. It was really clever and some really clever twists that I, 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 I didn't see coming. Um, let me ask you, which parts of this were, I guess, historically accurate and which parts were like creative license? And I want, I want to be careful with that because I don't want to spoil the story, but I was just curious. Sure. I was going to say, don't spoil that final twist, especially because it, it is a <laughs> man. It's a big one. <laughs> it's a big yeah. One. Well, that, that, that twist is my twist, but, the, um, but the events, okay. So Ali Pasha's story is extremely accurate in terms of all of his psychology and his own agenda. What I was most drawn to that I, that I didn't want to stray from was a leader that has an agenda that has nothing to do with the larger cause that is being presented publicly, right? So you assume that Ali Pasha is leading for the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and you assume that his intention is for the good of the Ottoman Empire and to keep their power in line, as opposed to all of our leaders, current ones especially, who have an agenda that has nothing to do with helping the people. Right. Um, so all of those elements are true, and that is kind of the through line that I held intact to tell the story. Um, a lot of those events even of the kind of harm that Ali Pasha will impose upon people where he weighs the priest and the businessman to see who he thinks is telling the truth, who puts them on the scale. He sees that one has gained weight, one has lost weight, and then decides that the one who gained weight is enjoying the the benefits of life and the one that lost weight, the priest lost weight in this specific <laughs> sequence. And so the priest must be suffering. So what does he do? He shoots the other guy out of a cannon. Um, you know, th- that's a true moment. So, so a lot of these things are, are, are very accurate. The things that got changed were primarily in telling Marcos's story, um, where, where the beginning of the, 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 the first section of the book, Marcos becomes a prisoner of Ali Pasha in his dungeon. Well, Marcos didn't actually become a prisoner in Ali's dungeon. He became a prisoner psychologically. Hmm. His, his village was destroyed and his people killed. And in, in actuality, Marcos and the survivors of the Soviets left and went to the Ionian islands and trained with the French army. So, and then came back and then fought like you see in the book. So instead of creating this whole sequence of separation, I just tied them together because they think psychologically Marcos's life from that point on was completely controlled and imprisoned by Ali Pasha. Um, so there are su- certain uh, changes 
in the book like that where I sort of justified through psychological means and and keeping the story more cohesive as opposed to creating the factual moments of him going and growing up on this island and learning how to fight over there. He learns how to fight over here. Um, so, so, so there are, to answer your question, a large majority of all the events that take place are accurate. There are certain things that have been justifiably changed for cohesive storytelling and to implement story structure and to fit it in a format. So for instance, there's a number of close people who die throughout the end of the book. If I had done that in the his accurate historical manner, I would have had to add two more battles and two more locations. So instead, I found a way to build an equation that it happened in a much more compressed manner. Mm-hmm. So things like that. So I want to ask you about one of the events specifically that to me was both the the writing and the art was so evocative and that's the the dance of Zalongo where the women throw themselves yeah. and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right and off the cliff and yeah. I Yep. That to me, that took my breath away. I mean, just the act of it, the way it, it was written in this very sort of quiet way. But and the, I mean, the art was really amazing. So I'm wondering if that is um, historically accurate as well. Yeah, that's totally accurate. Um, that's that's pretty much to the T accurate, uh, which is shocking because it's such a surreal moment. Um, and, and going there when I researched in Greece and, and going there and standing on these cliffs and, and you're looking out and it's this beautiful, you know, uh, you know, you can stand and it's beautiful. You can see to the oceans, you can see in all different directions. Well, when it's a clear day and imagining, oh my God, just not that long ago, this kind of chaos was going on right here. Uh, and tourists are passing by barely noticing. Um, and so, I mean, that's another reason I think that I was drawn to, to this storytelling is that we have this delusional idea that we're these kind of developed beings, but like five minutes ago in our history, we, we are these vicious kind of animalistic sort of tribal you know, as think beings as a species that are really not that evolved. Uh, and so less than 200 years ago, people are running around and in these beautiful places that we go to have a vacation and, a you know, uh, a Mai Tai and not, I guess not in Greece, but you know, if, 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 if you, if you did have a Mai Tai in Greece, it wouldn't feel wrong. Um, and just a minute ago, we were brutal and and harming one another in such an awful manner for no seemingly great reason other than ideologies that are conflicting and empowered people who are looking to attain more power. Um, anyway, that's kind of tangenting. But yeah, <laughs> Longo is real. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that makes... I- <laughs> total sense because I was thinking as I was reading it even though I know because it says it's in 1821 there's this like disconnect where I think about it as like really really long ago and then (laughs) um, in one of the scenes you have I think it's Lord Byron if I'm like and I went oh no this is not that long ago like it just like (laughs) the context and I'm glad that you included that because it made this yeah it, it gave it context in the like you don't think about this is really, really, really long ago. This wasn't <laughs> yeah. either. It was just 
recent in history, which is just, I, I love that little tidbit. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's crazy. But yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to hear that that helped you get a, a, a perspective. But um, yeah, the, the irony of this is everyone thinks of the French Revolution as being not super long ago because it's, it's made really sort of relevant because people know of Les Miserables and, and Napoleon is kind of turned into an iconic sort of figure. So, and you see movies on it or you, you know, see the musical and it, it, people realize, oh, it's not so long ago. Well, this came 40, 50 years after that. Uh, and it just has missed, um, commercial <laughs> notoriety. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty recent. Well, you mentioned uh, traveling to Greece in your research, and you mentioned the thousands of hours. And I, I, I guess uh, as someone who just enjoys the work, I, I, I'm curious, how does this um, contract researching for, like, say, a movie? And what actually goes into doing this? What actually went into making this as a graphic novel? Uh, well, I initially... All the same research that you would do to, to build any sort of story, whether it's a book or a movie or a TV series, you first got to figure out what the story is. And if it's historic and you care about any accuracy, then you have to do all of the research. So the research elements, I kind of get intensely obsessive about to the to the lack of of <laughs> to to the demise of my physical health and mental health probably too um and i had basically t- taken my garage at the time uh and i i built a wall that was just uh, cork board and a wall that was dry erase board. And I would take every bit of nuance that I found in- interesting and I created timelines of all the things and all of the characters. Um, and so by the time I had finished the research, I had created probably two to 3,000 pages of um, resource material uh, of, of just every character that was involved, every action that was significant and whatever, all of the, every piece of artwork or drawing or map that I could find of the time. Uh, so that was the first stage. Then after getting all of that, then became choosing which story then became outlining that story. Then all the, then I wrote a basic script of it, uh, in movie form and once that was done, then began the book process. And the book process pretty much consists of significantly, prim- primarily, who are you working with to make the book? So, so finding the team that would make the book and then becomes the initial process is, okay, we got to align ourselves on what this looks like. So we're all seeing the same thing. So then you go through a period of sketching out each character, each nuance, um, taking all of your resources and, and, and aligning them to each sequence that's written so that it's easy for people to pull up images and drawings of the time or the photographs I had taken of those spaces. And then they start so that we're all seeing the same sort of thing when we're talking. Um, so the nuances of the clothing, the nuances of, of what the architecture was like in that area, so forth and so on. And so once you kind of have aligned a look for each character and each space, then begins the 
the blocking of each page, which now is a process of taking the written script and blocking out what each panel of each page is going to be across two pages at a time so that there's an alignment in what's happening in the storytelling. After that happens, then there's adjustments to each page, then comes the, the, the coloring, and then comes the adding the text. And so once the we got to the text being added point came the, okay, the million changes to the text <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that basically you're rewriting the entire thing based on the artwork because initially what you've written doesn't necessarily convey the moments as well as they need to be conveyed to someone that doesn't know what's going on. Right. So there, think of it as an entire rewrite once you have the finished artwork in front of you, which is not how normal comics are made, but that's how I had to do this one. <laughs> gotcha. uh, yeah. So that's probably the fastest way I could summarize that <laughs> process. Thousands of hours of work. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that you are, of course, hoping to make this into a movie. And we had planned to ask you that because it seems like dream made for that. Now, working in Hollywood, you obviously have ideas. We're curious who your dream cast is. Yeah, that's a good question. You might have to help me figure that out. Um, I, I think, you know, because some of the people that some of the people who I was imagining in the beginning are too old now, you know, because it took so long. <laughs> so, so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so I think in initially when I started this, I think I sort of imagined Jack Nicholson as Ali Pasha, but now that can't happen. But I think uh, I, I could have seen Ben Kingsley being Ali Pasha. Um, I even like the idea of um, uh, uh, a guy that I, I've been blessed to, to, to meet a few times, um, Ben Mendelsohn. I think I don't care which character he wants to be. I would love to <laughs> work with him. Um, uh, so, so, but I think, be, I think you need to age Ali Pasha more. So I think he would be great as Kitsos. I mean, sorry, as, as a Mukhtar, okay. um, like mm -hmm. Ali's son. Uh, and, uh, who strangely, I love that character as awful as it is. Cause I see his struggle so intensely. Um, <laughs> but he's just brutal. Um, he's pretty so, brutal. <laughs> yeah, just awful, awful. Um, but um, okay, so I think for Marcos, I've seen in my head at times maybe like Andrew Garfield. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. I don't know. Okay, what are your thoughts? Who's come up in your mind? Do you have any? There's so many names. <laughs> <laughs> See, for some reason, I keep picturing like Gerard Butler, but then I'm like, is that just because of like <laughs> right. standard? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you totally, know, totally. for like so. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it also depends, right? Because these. Uh, people are really, really young. So as much as you could see Leonardo DiCaprio playing Marcos, 
he's really like 20 years older than Marcos yeah. was. Uh, so are you going for age accuracy? Because if you are that totally changed, then, then Leonardo DiCaprio would be like the Kitsos character, you know, yeah. Marcos's dad, um, <laughs> you know, but since typically we don't do things like that, it would be like a Leonardo being Marcos and then, you know, Sean Penn being his dad. Um, and then, you know, like Ben Kingsley being Ali Pasha, um, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, but yeah, I'm I'm totally gonna have to give some thought to who I'd want to cast in this. Yeah, yeah, it's a massive undertaking. Um, but uh, but yeah, please let me know who you think. Um, and please everybody tell me who you think if and when you ever read this, just send it to me at info yeah. <laughs> of Sons of Chaos because I'm, I need to figure it out. Yeah, I was going to say, Cameron Cuff, who plays uh, Superman's grandfather in Krypton. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, he's pretty right, good. I, I he's young. He's young. It's like, an, oh, it's like a prequel, right? So he's like 20-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, we're going to have to revisit on this uh, subject. Uh. Well, that's that's great, uh, and I hope we do revisit it because I wanted to ask you next about what are your upcoming projects. Maybe you want to promote, and we'll be happy to do that for you. Sure, I have been working for nearly this similar amount of time um, on a script that I have finished um, that is tied together with a nonprofit that I've been working with for the last nine years. And it's sort of like when I was a kid, my favorite movie was E.T., right? I was seeing it 11 times in the theater and and then 20 more times when it actually came on video. And uh, so it's it's kind of like my own version of E.T., but based on a true story instead of like a small alien looking creature uh, with a big finger. It's um, it's about a boy and a dolphin. And the the boy in life was born in the mid 80s with a congenital heart defect and he wasn't supposed to survive. And all the other kids that were born with this issue died within a year at the time, but he survived. And when he was three, he had his third open heart surgery. And during that surgery, he had a full right hemisphere stroke and went paralyzed on his left side. So in 1988, 89, our, our therapy technology was not amazing and it, it wasn't looking good for him and everybody had sort of ruled him out. But his mother was really relentless and she noticed that he responded well to animals. So she started taking him all over the place to interact with animals and, um, and eventually came upon this place that had dolphins and she sat him on the dock because uh, he couldn't sit on his own. Um, and this one dolphin popped up and started squeaking at him. And the kids started laughing for the first time in a month. So the mom started bringing him every day to see this dolphin. And they formed a really intense bond. And all of a sudden, the kid had enthusiasm again. And he was talking again. And, and he was motivated. And his mom was really savvy and she started tricking him (laughs) and she started saying things to him like, 
the dolphin's name was Fonzie. And he, he said, Fonzie really wants to play with you, but he's a left-handed dolphin. And because he was, because uh, Joe, the kid, was le- still paralyzed on his left side, she said, he, he's a left-handed dolphin. And to play with you, you have to be able to feed him with your left hand. So that night she found him talking to his hand in his bed saying, open, close, open, close. And he started driving himself to recovery so that he could play with his new friend. And through these tactics over the next year and a half, they had a full, he had a full recovery. So Mm -hmm. the, the, the movie is really this sort of love story between this little kid and the dolphin. And, and in some ways the dolphin helps heal the boy and save his life. And then the reverse happens and he helps save the dolphin. And, um, so, so that's the thing I would like to make next, but alongside of that with the nonprofit, which is called Island Dolphin Care in Key Largo, what we do there is we take dolphins that, uh, we have eight dolphins that can't survive in the wild. We remove them from a dolphin swim program so that they don't have to give foot pushes and get people, um, you know, grabbing on them all day uh, mm-hmm. for money. And uh, we created a similar thing to what Joe went through, which is uh, therapy for for special needs kids and for veterans with PTSD. Um, so, so that's what's going on now. And alongside of that, I am working with a group of amazing people to uh, build what is is more than, but is basically the first sanctuary for marine mammals in the country and trying to put pieces together but it's more than just a sanctuary but it's easier to just explain it like that for now without opening up a whole another 20 minute conversation (laughs) (laughs) so is there a a website or something that people can go to to read about the the island dolphin care just so we can make sure we promote that yeah, it's islanddolphincare.org, or okay. you can put in, there's another easier heading, which is IDC Key Largo. But yeah, search either one and uh, and uh, it'll come up. That's great. Well, that's, we can't uh, wait to, I mean, that sounds, <laughs> I'm like getting choked up even just hearing about it. So I would love for that to be a, an actual movie. So good luck. Cool, you know. cool. Yeah, there's a whole bunch about that movie and um, Island Dolphin Care on, on my personal website as well, which is chrisjames.com, J-A-Y-M-E-S. Right. Okay, perfect. So, Chris, we, we thank you so much for spending so much time with us. We do have one final question, and it's our final question <laughs> we ask every guest, and oh, that good. is your favorite fan experience you've ever had. This can be funny. It can be weird. Whatever you've had that strikes that, that jumps out at you as your favorite fan experience my favorite fan of like me being on the other side of like somebody that I'm a fan of or some or somebody at me <laughs> that is totally up to you we've had it both ways okay we've okay. had cancer survivor stories and we've had people getting some pictures of feet so you know it's up to you <laughs> wow well okay so I mean, the, the coolest, the coolest one for me was me being on the other side of it where, so my first movie uh, that I made, uh, in memory of my father that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. it, it premiered at the, um, 
at, at this film festival that doesn't exist now in Las Vegas. And the, the head sort of guy of the festival was Dennis Hopper. And so my film won and I, I was standing there to get the award and all these famous people were standing right in front of me like six feet away and one of them right in front of my face was Dennis Hopper and I couldn't speak like that that cliche thing where your throat closes up happened (laughs) and so like Dennis is sitting there like cheering me on and the only thing I could get out of my mouth was I would feel much safer right now if I had a helmet Um, (laughs) and and so so Dennis ended up and you know he's he's you know he's dead now so I can say this but um and he also was obviously not hiding his love for smoking pot so uh later that day um i got to smoke pot with dennis hopper nice. um and and, and 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 so it was kind of i wasn't even getting to participate because i was watching myself outside of myself uh-huh. going i can't believe this is happening in your life right now <laughs> and and so um so jump Two years later, I hadn't seen the guy. I hadn't talked to him in that whole time. And we, you know, it's not like we knew each other. We just had that moment together. And, uh, and so I'm walking into this lobby of a hotel and, um, I, I was with a, uh, I, I, a girl I had just started dating. Right. So I was still trying to be, you know, liked and look cool. And so we're walking into this lobby of a hotel to meet the band at, um, called Bell and Sebastian and a friend from the band stand up and start walking toward me and I'm all and all of a sudden somebody call out Chris I turn and it's Dennis Hopper who somehow knew my name still yeah and and uh and and hugged me right in the middle of this whole sequence and uh, again it was a moment that I left my body and went oh my god I I don't think it will ever be cooler than this moment Um, (laughs) and yeah and that was like 20 20 years ago and I haven't you know so so yeah uh, yeah. So that's my most exciting fan moment where I was the fan. Where you were the fan. That's awesome. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate you spending, uh, you know, almost an hour chatting with us. <laughs> yeah. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. All right. Have a good day over there. You too. All right. Bye. <laughs> All right, bye. Thanks for listening to another NERCS podcast. Rate us, leave us a review on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at NERCS of the Hub. And let us know what you think. 